Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So Paul's second letter, we just finished his first letter uh, to Timothy, and this is his second one. And so uh, there's been some time, obviously, that's elapsed since uh, Paul wrote his first epistle to Timothy. And, uh, you know, just as a way of background, you know, as, you've, as we've gone through the book of Acts, uh, the book of Acts closes with Paul under house arrest in Rome. And during that house arrest, uh, he was chained to a guard. Can you imagine being a guard chained to the, to the, chained to the Apostle Paul for however long that was? I mean, undoubtedly, I would think, imagine that. He probably came to faith in the Lord at some point. Uh, but anyway, so he was chained to a guard. Uh, he was allowed to live in his own quarters, his own place. Uh, and he was also able to have visitors. Now, that's the close of the uh, book of Acts, basically. We don't know what occurred after that, but um, at some point later on, Paul was released from, from house arrest. And some have speculated that he went on a missionary journey to Spain. We don't really know. There's, the, the Bible doesn't really tell us. But by the time Paul writes Second Timothy, he had been rearrested at Rome. But this time, instead of being in his own quarters, this time being allowed to have visitors come to visit him, he was put in a prison, in a dungeon. And, and many historians believe it was probably or possibly the Mamertine, or Mamertine prison in Rome, which is basically just a dungeon. And uh, uh, there's no mention of the charges leading to Paul's arrest. But it's quite interesting because around that time was when Rome burned. And uh, historians believe that Emperor Nero, who was in power at the time of Paul's second imprisonment, had set himself, had, he himself had set fire to Rome. And the idea is that he had this plan that, you know, Rome was going to, the, the city was going to be destroyed and he was going to be, the, this legacy was he was going to rebuild uh, Rome. And so because uh, there was no one who fessed up to the fire of destroying Rome, there were a lot of accusations at that time. And by this time, it was a crime to be a Christian. And uh, so it was very easy for people, the Roman citizens, to accuse Christians of arson. Now, so Paul had been arrested, and uh, it's quite possible, in fact, uh, people poss- there's a lot of evidence that points to the fact that Paul probably was brought before Nero to testify to Nero about the message of the gospel. Now, we know that at some point, uh, Nero basically went insane, and uh, he started arresting Christians, and he would take them and he would burn them alive in his garden to light up his garden at night. He just completely lost his mind, and it has been suggested that it was after he rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ that was presented by Paul, that that's when he just he flipped and, uh, and did all these things. Well, Nero, um, like I said, uh, Nero died in, well, I didn't say, Nero died in June of, of 68 A.D., and Paul was uh, beheaded, actually, according to church history, shortly before that date. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, it had been a crime to be a Christian, and at this point it was very dangerous to be seen with Paul. See, in his first arrest, 
people could come and visit him. It was no big deal. But now, to be associated with Paul or to be associated with the way, as they called the Christian faith at that time, uh, it was dangerous. It could be life-threatening. And so by this point, as we'll see as we read through this letter, many of Paul's associates had deserted Paul. And uh, Paul there had spent a winter in this prison, and it had a, it just had had an effect on him physically because he's not a young guy at this point. Um, and so, Paul in this last epistle, and you'll kind of pick it up as we read through it in the next couple of weeks. But he really knew; he had this sense that his death was imminent. He really sensed that uh, that this was his last letter that he'd be writing. And so he writes this letter to Timothy. Now, if you were in prison awaiting a death sentence for the faith of Jesus Christ, for your testimony, what would be going through your mind? What would, you, what would be occupying your time as you were waiting execution? Well, we get a glimpse into that as we begin to read here. So beginning with 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul, called to be an apostle, he was apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And so Paul, you know, not only eagerly embraced the free gift of salvation by faith in Christ Jesus, but Paul also accepted the suffering of Christ that went along with identifying with him. Paul's life and his ministry, even his suffering for the gospel, was according to the will of God. And Paul understood that. He wasn't bitter about his imprisonment. However, as you read the letter, you really get a sense he was deeply hurt by those that abandoned him. And that's a natural feeling to feel when everybody abandons you. And evidently that is what happened. And we'll, we'll get to that a little later on in this chapter. But rather than being bitter and preoccupied with his own suffering, knowing that he's going to be excuse, uh, executed, excuse me, Paul instead is focused on the promise of eternal life in Christ Jesus. You know, for you and I as believers, death should no longer fear us or cause us to fear. Uh, you know, before we came to faith in Christ, death had a completely different uh, meaning. But for you and I as believers, death is just a transition from this life into the presence of the Lord. And, and it's, just a, it's just a momentary transition. And so uh, for us, you know, we are not like those who are without hope. We have that hope in Christ Jesus. And so for, for the believer, death is completely different than it is for a non-believer. Well, beginning in verse 3, he says, I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did. As without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. What was Paul thinking about in that prison? in that cold, dark prison. Well, first of all, he realized, man, my conscience is pure. 
Paul wasn't put into prison for being weird or for being Ill, doing something illegal. Paul was simply a Christian, and that was what he was suffering for, solely for his faith in Christ Jesus. He, my, my conscience is pure, is what he was saying. And he's thinking back to his forefathers, those who also served God with a pure conscience, who many of them, like, for example, Isaiah and Jeremiah, those men, man, they served God with a pure conscience, but they suffered greatly for their faith. And Paul is thinking about these guys. Not only that, but instead of just thinking about himself and how it's miserable in his prison there and how everybody's left him, Paul is also thinking about his church family. And that's why he's writing this letter to Timothy, trying to encourage Timothy. He's thinking here in particular about Timothy. Now, we know Timothy was from Lystra. Lystra was one of the cities that Paul and Barnabas visited on their very first missionary journey. Now, whether Paul met Timothy at that time, I don't know. Whether that was when his, his grandmother and mother came to faith, we're not really sure, although it's probably very likely that that's the case. But Paul again visited Lystra on his second missionary journey. And at that time, young Timothy had an impact on Paul. And Paul invited young Timothy to accompany him in his travels and in his ministry. What a wonderful thing for the Apostle Paul to do, to bring this young man along, to just show him the ropes, basically have him just live and eat and just spend time ministering with Paul. It's so important for older, mature Christians to include younger believers in their lives, you know, mentoring and encouraging them, not necessarily teaching all the time, but allowing them to come alongside, to, to, to learn by observation, to participate in ministry. I'm so blessed to see Michael up here playing the drums. I'm, I'm blessed by that. I'm blessed to hear my granddaughter singing because I know she's anxious to come up and start joining in in worship. And I think it's so important to allow kids to be involved in ministry. So important. You know, and, and I, I've seen, and you know, I don't know that I've seen it here, but I have seen so many people that get involved in ministry and they kind of do it apart from their family or apart from their kids. And, it, you know, for whatever reason, they don't include their children in it. I think it's so important to include your children in that because it's your life. And you want them to experience it and, and to be involved and understand what ministry is. Well, Timothy's mother and grandmother were believers. Paul mentions that. And we know from Acts that at least initially, Timothy's father was not a believer. He was a Gentile. And like Paul... Timothy would commit his life and he would eventually lay down his life in service to Christ Jesus. I don't know, you know, how many parents, you know, parents always have different hopes for their children, but I think every parent has a hope that their children are going to succeed in life, that they're, they're going to do well, they're going to be productive, and they're going to be good citizens. They're not going to end up in jail or prison or whatever, you know, or on, you know, whatever. Uh, they, they want their children to succeed and stuff, and, and uh, I'm sure it was no different with Timothy's parents. But what a blessing for Timothy's mother, at least, and grandmother to see Timothy grow up following the Lord, even to the point of laying down his life for Jesus Christ. And, you know, it started, I'm sure, I'm convinced it started with the godly example of his mother and his grandmother. And, and not only the godly example, but I, undoubtedly they prayed for young Timothy. 
It's so important to be praying for our children, being godly examples to them, teaching them. And, you know, now my children are grown and they have their own families. And so now I've I've taken on the mission of praying for their children and trying to be an example of their children as much as I can, as much as I'm allowed to. And uh, it's so important to pass on that legacy of faith to the next generation. Well, here's Paul in prison. And, you know, you think of all the things that Paul did. He started all these different churches. He went on all these different missionary journeys. I mean, he preached in so many different places. And now he's in prison there in a dark prison cell. What do you think he's going through his mind? Like, I'm out of commission. Uh, I'm I'm no longer useful for the ministry. That's not what Paul was like. Paul, his ministry was not on hold. Paul, the apostle the missionary, the pastor, the teacher. He's sitting in a prison, but guess what? He's still active for the Lord. He's still praying for the Lord, and he's trying to encourage Timothy with his letter. And he's praying night and day. And he wasn't just preoccupied with his own misery and praying about that, although undoubtedly that was, you know, Lord, you know, praying about his situation. But that wasn't all that he was praying for. He was praying night and day for Timothy. You know, if Paul couldn't minister in person, he could still pray. And his attitude isn't, well, you know, there's nothing else I can do here. I might as well, you know, I got all this time to fill. I might as well just pray. No, for Paul, this was spiritual warfare. It was work. And he was doing it night and day, praying. It's such an important ministry. Have you ever had someone tell you that they were praying for you? I I don't know about you, but man, that just blesses me. When I hear that, I was, this morning I got up early and I was kind of going over my notes and I get this text from a pastor friend of mine and I I knew he blasted it out to more than just me. It's kind of, he sent to different pastors, but he just said, Hey, I'm praying for you this morning that you'd be a blessing to your fellowship. And I, and, and it just came to me just at a time. I'm like, Lord, thank you for sending that. What an encouragement that is. I was at a, uh, men's retreat a couple years ago and this guy walked up to me and 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 you know i introduced myself to him and he already knew me knew my name and stuff and and you know i didn't really remember him to be honest with you and basically he said hey you're pastor don i'm like yeah and he goes man i've been praying for you for the last year and i go you have i don't do i know you he goes yeah we met at another conference he says i wrote your name down i've got you on a calendar at my home and i've been praying for you every day i'm like wow I mean, it just blew me away. You know, it's like, wow, and I, I forgot your name. <laughs> but anyways, it had such an impact on me. It's such an encouragement that people do that. And maybe you're sitting here thinking this morning, man, I wish I was on somebody's prayer list. No, I wish somebody was thinking about me and praying about me every day. And man, wouldn't it be awesome to have someone like the Apostle Paul or the Billy Graham or something say, hey, I'm praying for you, Joel. You know, I mean, just to, just to hear something. Well, you're, if your name's Joel, that would be really cool. <laughs> But, you know, you do have something far better than that. The Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ is before the Father in heaven right now, interceding for each one of us. You're on his heart and on his mind every day. He's praying for you even this morning as you're sitting here. Verse 6, Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. What does Paul mean by stirring up Timothy's spiritual gift? Well, to stir up means to rekindle. 
and the idea if you've ever gone camping you kind of get that idea you're sitting around the campfire you're talking with your friends or maybe you've gone and done some stuff and you come back and the fire's kind of died down it's 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 kind of turned into a smoldering glow basically and so what do you do you go over there and you poke it a couple times you flip a log over so another the fresh side starts burning you stir it up and and then whoosh it's burning once again. That's the idea that Paul is saying here about stirring up spiritual gifts. How do you stir up a campfire? You revisit it frequently. You move around the logs, turning them over, giving them another chance to continue burning on a new side that hasn't burned. Well, how do you stir up your spiritual gifts? Well, simply by revisiting them frequently, exercising them, finding opportunities to put them into practice. And that's what Paul is encouraging Timothy to do, to stir up his spiritual gifts. Now, the fact that he tells Timothy to stir up his spiritual gifts teaches us a couple things about spiritual gifts. First of all, we can neglect them through disuse. By not using those gifts, we can neglect them. They can, they can be like the fire that just starts growing cold and, and becoming a smoldering just smoke, basically. So we can neglect them if we're not using them. Secondly, we have control over our spiritual gifts. That's an interesting concept. You know, the Holy Spirit has given us these gifts, but he allows us to participate with him in, these, in the exercise of these gifts. And the thing is, we have control over them. We don't have, you know, we don't become this possessed robot with no control whatsoever when the Holy Spirit comes over us. I just, you know, I, I had to do this weird thing just because, you know, the Spirit came over me. I had no control. That's not what the Bible teaches. We have control. In fact, Paul even teaches in 1 Corinthians 14 that there are times when people who have a word of prophecy or a tongue without an interpretation, they need to just sit down and be silent in the church. So you, you can control it. You're not like a robot with no control. So why does Paul encourage Timothy to stir up his spiritual gifts? Well, evidently, Timothy tended to be reserved and timid. Maybe he was conscious or overly conscious of what others thought about him. But whatever it was, it was to the point that he was holding back, even being a bit fearful. And I don't know about you, but fear is something that we all deal with. Fear is a tool that the devil uses to silence us when we ought to speak up. There are times when we need to speak up and fear will keep us silent. There's times when we're afraid to exercise the gifts that we have been given. You know, what if I speak in a tongue and nobody interprets it? <gasps> what if I pray for that person to be healed and they're not healed? What if I share the Lord with that person and they end up laughing at me or they think I'm weird or they just kind of ignore me from now on? Those are fears that can keep us from doing. They can paralyze us and render us ineffective for the kingdom. And therefore, Paul encourages Timothy there. Look at verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That fear that you're experiencing, that you're feeling... It's not from God. He hasn't given us a spirit of fear. He wants you and I to take steps of faith, trusting Him. God has given us a spirit of power, and it's His power working in us. It's not our power. You know, some people like to talk about power. 
power. You know, I got power. You know, you, you get some of these evangelists are always talking about power. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes in those cases, it's people that they want to have control over others. Now, there's one televangelist. If I mentioned his name, you'd know exactly what I was talking about. I've watched him many times. Well, not many times, but I've seen him on TV, you know, in these evangelistic or healing crusades or whatever, and he gets his coat, and he swings his coat, and all these rows of people just fall down. And, you know, and, and then, so then it's kind of like a joke, like, whoof, and the, this row over here, these people over here fall down. They whoosh, and he does it right up there on the stage, and all these people fall down and stuff. And, you know, that's not the power that Paul is talking about here. It's interesting. In John chapter 13, verse 3, Jesus is with his disciples the night before he gets crucified. And it says in John 13, verse 3, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. Now that's ultimate power. All things were given into his hands. What did he do with that power in his hands? Wake his coat so everybody falls. No. It says he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of his disciples and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded with. Now he had all that power. And what did he use it for? For ministering, for serving. God has given you and I power, but it's to serve others. But the cool thing is it's to serve others supernaturally, Naturally. I mean, it's not like weird. It's just supernaturally natural. That's the way I like to look at the, the gifts of the Spirit. God has also given us a spirit of love because the Bible teaches us that without love, the exercise of our gifts, man, they don't they profit nothing. They don't do anything. And, of course, perfect love drives out fear. And then finally, God has given us a sound mind or self-control or discipline is how you could think of it. And the idea is being, instead of panic... In confusion, the Spirit brings calm and peace and a clarity of thought. Verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Again, like I mentioned, it was very dangerous to be identified as a Christian or to be known associate of Paul at this time. I think the time is fast approaching in our nation when standing up for righteousness is going to cost us. You know, it's interesting. There's one, I, I don't know if about you, you know, you buy these plaques that have verses on them, and, you know, I, I, there's certain ones we have in our house, and they're, they're great plaques to, to look at and to remember and to focus on and, and to think about. And, you know, we don't have any fridge magnets right now. We probably do, but they're packed away. But, there are. Oh, okay. Anyways, um, I'm not a big fridge banging guy, but anyways. Um, but, you know, you get these verses, and, and they're, they're nice to have because you look at them and you remember them. And, you know, there's one fridge magnet or plaque that I've never seen decoupaged. I've never seen it in a craft store or at a garage sale or in people's homes. And it's this promise. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's a promise we probably like. Well, I wish that wasn't really in the Bible. You know, with this Supreme Court ruling that just happened about homosexual marriage, it's going to make it harder to stand against homosexual marriage. We need to be prepared to be labeled, you know, to be, to be accused of hate crimes. 
And, you know, I think it's going to happen first with us pastors. We're going to get people wanting us to perform wedding ceremonies and not going to be able to do it. And, of course, lawsuits and whatever else is going to follow with that. But I think it's not just going to happen to pastors. I think it's going to trickle down to all of us. And we're all going to get to that point. In fact, I was I was listening to a, a little YouTube clip with Franklin Graham, and he was speaking about, uh, you know, they were asking him about, oh, what about this Supreme Court ruling? And, of course, he said, well, I, I'm not going to be performing any, any homosexual weddings. I mean, plain and simple, I'm not going to be doing that. But he said, you know, I think Christians in the United States better realize and better prepare because persecution is coming. And it's coming fast. And so... I think before long, you and I are going to be afforded the opportunity to share with Paul and the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Paul suffered for the gospel, but it was according to the power of God. And you might say, wait a minute. If it was according to God's power, why couldn't God, by his power, remove Paul from his suffering? I don't have an answer for that. For whatever reason, God chose to allow Paul to suffer And the thing is, if God chooses to allow you and I to suffer according to his power, he's also going to give us his power to endure it. And also, not only that, but you can be sure that he is still in control. The enemy hasn't just been given and handed over and there there you are. You know, you're under their control. No, he is still in control. He's still on the throne. Verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. You know what's interesting? Paul has a lot of long sentences. <laughs> They're hard to break up. But, you know, I've always, I'm like, I wish they were shorter sentences, but he packs so much into these sentences. Well, what's Paul saying here? Well, before time began, God had a plan and a purpose to save you and I. And his plan and his purpose was according to his calling. It wasn't according to anything that you or I could do. And God's plan and His purpose for our salvation was revealed to us in the appearing of Jesus Christ. And God's plan was to give you and I eternal life while Jesus fulfilled God's plan by abolishing death. And like I said earlier, for the believer, death is not the same as what it is for an unbeliever. And it says eternal life and immortality were brought to light in Christ Jesus because you and I, see, that's the hope that we have. When you go to a believer's funeral, I mean, yeah, of course you're sad and you're grieving at the loss of a loved one, but you know what? It's not the same as an unbeliever's funeral because we have that hope because Jesus rose from the dead. I know that I too am going to rise from the dead. I know that that believer, that brother, that sister in the Lord that's gone on to be, they're going to rise from the dead as well. There's, because Jesus rose from the dead, all those who put their trust in him for their salvation will also rise from the dead. And because Jesus walked the earth for 40 days after his resurrection, we kind of get a glimpse into what to expect when we receive our glorified bodies. All that stuff was brought to light in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things that you think about this, that Paul wrote here, just let that sink in for a moment. God planned your salvation 
before time even began. I mean, think about that. Before time even began, before you were even a blip on anybody's radar screen, you were on God's radar screen. And he planned your salvation. And God's plan was put into effect or made manifest with the appearing of Christ Jesus. And so the plan was in motion at that point. And then God's plan was revealed to you and I when he called you and I and saved us. And we responded in faith. And the thing is, God's plan and purpose still continues in your and my lives today. There's still a plan that's being worked out in our lives. And it may involve suffering. But whatever it is, God's calling us and there's a purpose for each one of our lives. There's nothing that happens coincidentally to us. And things are not just happening to you that God's not aware of. Or that He and His sovereignty is not allowed. Just let that sink in. God has a purpose for you and for me. Now, some aspects of that purpose is the same, right? He, he wants each one of us. He wa- wants each one of us to spend eternity with Him. I mean, that's God's, God's plan and His purpose for each one of us. But God also has unique parts to that plan that affect, you know, not all of us are going to be called to suffer in a prison like Paul was. But some of us might. It might be part of God's plan for each one of us. And that's, a, that's the thing is our plan, God's plans for us are unique in that sense. God's plan and his purpose is going to be fully realized, of course, when you and I exit the domain of time and enter eternity. And then it's done. It's finished. It's completed. Well, Paul finishes his thought here in verse 11 with almost, if you go back to 1 Timothy, it's almost the same word-for-word description of himself as he did earlier in his first letter uh, to Timothy. And he says, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. That was earlier in his ministry. Now, many years later, and Paul's realizing he's facing death. Death is certain here. And, uh, you know, many people have abandoned Paul. He's in that lonely prison dungeon. And uh, there he reminds himself, hey, I was called a pastor, an apostle, and a teacher. And you know what? Paul is one of those that can say, you know what? I fulfilled that calling. I've been faithful to it all these years. In fact, later on in, in uh, I think it's chapter 4, he's going to say, I've, I've, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've, I've completed what I've set out to do. He never, he never wavered from that calling in God's life. He remained faithful to it. Verse 12, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. I, I had, when I was studying this, I had to think about when I was growing up in church, there was a hymn that we used to sing all the time. I know whom I believed, or I don't, that's not the title of it, but that's a verse in there all the time. But I was thinking about that. You know, from the time... From the day that Jesus revealed himself to Paul on that road to Damascus, Paul's life, of course, was completely, radically changed. Paul had been called to a life of preaching, preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ, teaching the doctrine of faith that had been revealed to him, and leading the churches as an apostle. And Paul accepted his calling, and he remained true and faithful to it the rest of his life. But he learned along the way. Remember when? Remember when he when he was blinded, and then and then the Lord told Ananias to go to Saul because he was Saul of Tarsus at that time, and and pray for him to receive his sight. And Ananias is like, "Wait a minute, Jesus, are you sure you got the right guy? 
I mean, this guy, he's known as a persecutor, you know, of brethren. He's, he's gone everywhere dragging people to, to prison in Jerusalem. And, and Jesus says, yeah, yeah, that's the same guy. I'm paraphrasing, of course. I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer. You know, and, and I don't think the Lord just revealed everything to Paul. Like, okay, Paul, in 67 AD or whatever, you're going to be beheaded for your faith. You know, I don't think the Lord told him all that. But I think it was a progressive revelation of Paul's life. And I think it's the same with you and I. You know, we accept Christ as our Savior, and the Lord says, you know, if you, if you follow me, you're probably going to suffer persecution. But he doesn't tell us right up front, because we'd probably freak out if we did, if he did. But throughout Paul's ministry, he started learning, hey, this is costing me. But he was willing to accept it. And, and he just learned that his calling, and he accepted that his calling, not only would it bring great joy and, of course, eternal life and rewards, but it also would result in his suffering. What enabled Paul to endure suffering and remain true to his calling? It's not his knowledge of the word and doctrine. Now, that's important. Okay, it's important to know, to understand the word. It's important to understand the Christian doctrine, the doctrine of faith and stuff. But that's not what enabled Paul to endure suffering or remain true. What enabled him? His knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what it was. I know in whom I have believed. I, it's not, I, I know what I believe. That's not what he said. I know in whom I have believed. In the person of Jesus Christ, because Paul had a relationship with Jesus. And Paul had committed his life to Jesus, but not only his life. I mean, he committed his physical body, his reputation, his character, even his life's work to Jesus. And Paul knew that Jesus was able to keep all that Paul had committed to Jesus until that day. Now, it's interesting. He's writing a letter to Timothy, right? And he's writing about that day. Now, Paul didn't need to elaborate to Timothy what day he meant. Because I think both Paul and Timothy understood exactly what Paul was writing about. Paul was talking about either Christ's return or when Paul would be called home to heaven. And both Paul and Timothy lived their lives in anticipation of that day. And that day was precious to them. You know, to the degree that you and I commit our lives and all that we are, our reputations, our careers, our physical bodies, everything, to the degree that you and I commit our lives and all we are to Jesus, that's the same degree that that day is going to be precious to each one of us too. In chapter 4, we're not going to get there, of course, this morning, unless you want to stay for a couple hours. But Paul's going to again talk about that day, and he just mentions it, that day, when Christ the righteous judge awards him and all those who love his appearing with the crown of righteousness. That verse has always stuck with me as a believer. Those who love his appearing. I mean, what does it mean to love his appearing? Well, we'll talk about it when we get to that chapter, but I think this is what Paul is referring to, you know? Um, the more you and I let go of this world and the more that you and I commit to Jesus and commit our lives and our futures and everything to Jesus, the more we're loving his appearing. Because the opposite is, the more you love the world, the more you're devoted to the world and the more you've kind of bought into the world and the, and the less you've, sac- you've given to the Lord, committed to the Lord, you know, you kind of hold him back. To that degree, you're not all that anxious about Christ's return because, you know, you like what you got going here. And so the more you and I commit ourselves to the Lord, the more we're going to be in anticipation and and looking forward to that day. 
Verse 13, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So Paul here is referring to probably a basic outline or a sketch of doctrine that he had verbally taught Timothy over the years. And, you know, if you remember, they spent a great deal of time together on missionary journeys together. Now, you know, one of the things that, that I love, and uh, I've seen my wife do it and, and uh, other believers do it, is, you know, when you're mentoring someone or you're, you're spending time with believers, they're helping you out. Or you just start talking about the gospel. You talk about Christianity, your faith, and, and you're teaching you know, if you're a mature Christian, you're teaching whoever it is you're mentoring and stuff. They don't even have to know you're mentoring it because you're just spending time together, working together, hanging out together, and, and talking. And uh, I'm sure that's what Paul is referring to. You know, Paul's like, you know, hey, you understand the truth of Scripture. You understand the doctrines. Keep those things. Keep that pattern. You know, Timothy not only needed to remember what Paul had taught him, but Timothy also needed to have that conviction that what he had been taught was true. Because that's an important thing, too. You need to believe what you believe. And Timothy needed to have faith in the truth, but he also needed to follow it in love. Verse 14, That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Think about that. Paul had committed everything he had to Jesus. And Jesus, in turn, committed a ministry to Paul, that good fight, right? That good thing, the good fight. I like what F.B. Meyer says. How striking Paul's reference to the double committal, as if there had been an agreed exchange between his master and himself. Paul had handed over to Christ as a sacred deposit all that concerned his well-being in time and eternity. And Christ had handed over to him the interests of his kingdom, which by the grace of the Holy Spirit he was required to maintain inviolate. inviolate. (laughs) It is a mutual exchange of which we all ought to know something. Give all to Christ, and Christ becomes all to you. The proportion of your self-giving is the measure of your discovery of what Jesus will be to you. The more you surrender to Jesus, the more he's going to reveal himself to you. That relationship is just going to grow. And notice what Paul says here, that good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. I love that. Paul is is making sure that Timothy understands, man, hey, Timothy, we have the same Holy Spirit dwelling in us. You know, sometimes it's easy for us to place spiritual leaders on a higher level in our estimation. Why? Because they have some special anointing. They've got some special thing going with the Holy Spirit. And that's not true. We've all been given the Holy Spirit. The same measure. The the, the difference is how submitted Christians are to Him is what sets them apart. That's where the difference is. But we all have been given the same Holy Spirit. Verse 15 this you know that all in those all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he might find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus." Again, you know, Christians were being made the scapegoat for the burning of Rome. 
and being associated with faith had become unpopular and even dangerous. And the time had come where a believer in Christ needed to count the cost of following him. And many of those had abandoned Paul. Many of those, they didn't, they didn't like the cost. And so, they, and so here Paul mentions two of them by name. Apparently, evidently, Timothy knew who these two were. Now think about this. Here's Paul, the apostle of the Lord. How many people had he led to Christ? I mean, you can imagine, it probably would have been thousands. How many churches had he founded? Again, many churches. He was well-known and respected throughout all the churches. And as an older pastor, an older missionary, as, as, an, epistle, as an apostle, you would think that there would be many who would want to minister to Paul in his time of need. But here's Paul, left alone in that dungeon. But it's just him and the Lord at his time in this life. It's probably not an uncomfortable thing. It probably was a sad thing for Paul. But I think sometimes, I think sometimes it's, it's, it's a necessary thing for us to realize. You know, when everything gets stripped away, it's just you and your relationship with Jesus. And I think that's where Paul's at right here. And then there's Onesiphorus, this brother in the Lord who, over the years, of course, Paul had been, you know, Paul had been at Ephesus and he administered to Paul back in Ephesus. Timothy knew him. Um, he heard Paul was in prison in Rome and he went out of his way to find Paul and to minister to him. And here Paul prays that the Lord grants mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. And at the end of his letter, he sends greetings to Aquila, Priscilla, and the household of Onesiphorus. Notice he doesn't mention Onesiphorus himself. Onesiphorus, whatever. What it seems to suggest in the scriptures here, it seems to imply is that Onesiphorus had died. And since he had visited Paul in Rome during this time, it's quite possible he had counted the cost. And that cost resulted in his death for visiting Paul and being, you're a Christian too? And being executed. We don't know, but it, it seems to be implied here. This is the epistle, or this epistle is the only place where Nisiphorus is mentioned. And yet that mercy that he extended to Paul had such an impact that Paul mentions him in scriptures. And I want to encourage you this morning. You know, sometimes you think, you know, the Lord lays on your heart to minister to somebody and you go, it's no big deal, but you're obedient to it and you go and you do it. You don't know what that person's going through at that time. You don't know what they've been through. You don't know, maybe they're just completely, they've lost hope or they're so discouraged and you're that refreshment that comes to them in the Lord and says, hey, the Lord cares. He sent me. You know, you probably don't say it that way, but you know, definitely that's taken that way. Anisiphorus left a legacy for his family, too, because Paul prays that they find mercy and sends them his greetings. And all of it is because of the sacrifice and the service of Anisiphorus. So I want to encourage you this morning to be an Anisiphorus, if that's the way you pronounce his name. (laughs) All right. Hey, why don't you... uh...